Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Nicholas Potts, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Nicholas Potts is an architect and designer who has led landmark projects at world-renowned architecture firms such as Rem Kuhas, Shop Architects, and Bjarka Ingels over at Big, uh, covering a broad spectrum of scales and project types including super tall towers, award-winning buildings for culture and worship, single-family houses, and research-driven exhibitions. Recently relocated from New York to Washington, D.C., he's pursuing high-concept work that builds on his legacy and his unique approach to design, focused on deep historical, technical, and cultural research, data-driven communication, and an embrace of image-making and beauty. So, Nicholas, I'm really interested in super talls and monuments, and, yes. I would, and, I, and I'm fascinated with the idea of monuments. Um, I, I, I am very interested in history, specifically American history. My mom brought us up as kids sort of visiting different places in our country to sort of learn the history of the American history, and I'm always fascinated by monuments, and, and I always stopped to read the plaque and understand <laughs> what the monument's all about. I, I would love to talk about the process of designing a monument, how they are inspired and what the process is to yes. go through that. Before we do that though, I wanna learn more about you. Um, I'd love to learn your origin story. When did you discover your passion for architecture and who, who or what inspired you to become an architect? 
And it was almost natural growing up. I mean, I, and I think every architect has the whole Lego kind of archetypal story about playing with Legos, but I, so I felt like it was just kind of natural. I'd say my passion for it didn't happen until I was actually working, <laughs> which is kind of strange. You know, I just, it was almost like an automatic thing. Yes, you'll be an architect. Yes, you'll go to school for it. Yes, you'll get a job at a firm. So very, then, very early on as a child, you sort of oh, yeah. knew yeah, that was, that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, I taught myself one point perspective when I was five. So it's just, again, it, it, I think a lot of architects kind of have these sorts of yeah. stories about yeah. kind of spatial thinking, but it. It, you know, so that was, that was automatic, but the passion part didn't start until much, much later, just because yeah. everything was kind of automatic. I just kind of did right. it because it was expected. And it wasn't until I was working actually in a firm and in a very kind of unique situation of the studio and a firm HGA in Minneapolis, um, which is my first job out of school, of grad school at the University of Minnesota, um, where I somehow landed in this studio embedded in a huge like thousand person firm. There's a three person studio led by uh, Joan Serrano and John Cook who do one project at a time. And it's super rigorous and super detailed. And we kind of, we know everything because the teams were really small. Yeah. Like you kind of absorb everything. And that's really when things started clicking in terms of, you know, learning, you know, it's not just about kind of when you put together a building, but you're telling a story, you're building, you're bringing the client on board, you're detailing things, you're thinking about marketing the building. I mean, there's everything, you're doing everything all at once and can't can't pawn any parts off to a specialist elsewhere in the firm because we owned all of it. And that was really just kind of a, such a unique experience. And I think most, most people working on projects of that scale just don't have, I mean, you're on a, you're on a huge team of, 30 people. And because, you know, Joan, John and myself touched every part of everything we were working on, it was the only thing we were doing, you, you know, learning way more, way deeper and way more intensely than, than kind of a more drawn out sort of typical kind of rise and get more responsibility to go on. So I was doing a lot, having a lot of agency. Why (laughs) Um, was that studio created in such a large firm? What was the, what was the inspiration for creating a studio like that? And there's been a history of these sorts of studios and firms. You know, you think about kind of your Gordon Bunshaft sort of sort of models in SOM. When HGA set it up, I mean, they recognized an extreme talent in in Joan and kind of created a situation where she could flourish. And, and I think it was, you know, really kind of visionary leadership on the part of the firm to um, to recognize that and realize, you know, hey, we can, you know, we can probably win more awards. We can kind of create this incubator you know, pushes, you know, pushes the whole firm forward in kind of developing details that kind of a more, you know, profit or typologically, typological special, specialized project would do because it's kind of in a gray area. Every project is, you know, there's no commonality in terms of project typology or, or scale. So I think it became an incubator for innovation throughout the firm as well. There are details that kind of trickled through. So I think it was, you know, it was definitely a top-down decision, but the kind of thing that you know, a firm of that size was really smart. <laughs> and how did you, as a as a student coming you know, coming out of architecture school, how did you find your way to that that studio? It was you know, like all things, somewhat accidental. <laughs> and there's this there's this prize, um, there's this annual prize that the local AA Minnesota gives out. It's called the Ralph Raps and Traveling Fellowship. It was something that Ralph, who was kind of the lead, this kind of visionary architect who 
not nearly enough people know about nationally. Um, was based in Minnesota. He established it based on the Roach Traveling Fellowship in Massachusetts. He had been in Massachusetts and wanted to set something up similar. So it's an annual competition for young designers who work in Minnesota or graduate from the University of Minnesota can compete and do um, and spend, you know, a week on a design project, open competition, you get a traveling 10 or $15,000 prize to travel based on based on the year. So kind of there's big competition happens every March. And my first year of school, I did did one and I did these just totally wacko renderings of my scheme. I didn't do any kind of typical things. I did these dramatic, almost frightening Pyrenean views of my idea. And Joan saw them because the pinup was in our studio. Joan saw them and plucked me. And, and that was just kind of the story of it. You were discovered. <laughs> yes. So, so were those renderings, were they, were they hand drawings or were they, were they computer based? They were computer. And that was in the time when I was, everything was like, I was learning, I was teaching myself how to render and yeah. they're like, I see everything, you know, everything I do, I see as a, an experiment. So that was my project to learn how to render through the competition. So she saw I that. Not, I did not win, but. <laughs> but she saw that creativity and, yeah. and, and so did she reach out to you or did she recognize you through an application? Uh, well, I was actually, I was already working at HGA. So, oh, so you were, she's kind you of plucked me into her studio and got that. it. She said, Oh, yeah. you have somebody here already. <laughs> yes. She's mine. Or he's mine. Yeah. Got it. Got it. All right. Um, all right. So you find your way into that studio mm -hmm. and then, so where do you go from there? And that was just a, I mean, that was a really great, you know, seven year collaboration with Joan and John starting on a very small, um, very small, um, synagogue project that I inherited. And then we did, you know, quite a few, um, actually, I think the first, the first project was actually a competition for Yale for a project at Yale for health sciences thing that we did not win either. <laughs> um, but then I, I became a regular in their studio and worked kind of on the trifecta of projects from a synagogue and Rochester, Minnesota, near Mayo Clinic, to uh, a small museum in Winona, Minnesota, and then and then Lakewood Mausoleum, which was the that was kind of the big kind of explosion of everything. When I, you know, I at that point I'd reached some maturity and some trust within the studio where I was really there, letting me make very large moves in the building. It was also you know one of these once in a lifetime sorts of projects where the budget is healthy the client is totally like on board with anything and willing to and well this is just the kind of the result of Joan and John's process but we had trust early on to go in directions that wouldn't have been expected and we we're kind of learning about kind of mausoleums and and commemoration and also a very historic site at the same time like both in the interview and then as we went through the project and it was just kind of this one of these things where you spend three years working on a project, you know, it's the only thing you're working on and it's all encompassing and you learn more than anything. <laughs> and, and that, that totally kind of busted my, my professional trajectory. That was, you know, it was like a dream. And then what do you do? What do you do after right, right. something like that? And I was, you know, and this whole idea of monuments, it's funny that you talked about them being something that how they happen and to me it's accidental like I'd never I mean I never thought you know I thought I was just going to be like most architects from from who come from nowhere I just thought you know I'd be working on a couple of small good buildings right I used to say I would never work on something tall or big or 
fancy. I just wanted to make make nice buildings. So Lakewood kind of busted that and gave me a drive to say, like, you know, I got to top this. I've got to do something. You've got to keep. You know, I've learned so much. And it's been so fulfilling. What do I do after after that? And so in the kind of in the trajectory of um, of Lakewood, I I won the Rapson Fellowship like the second year that I that I did it and traveled right at the right in the kind of cusp between two projects. I was right before Lakewood. So I went to India and looked at Le Courcier and Khan is kind of my area of focus and and just seeing and there are a lot of problems with those buildings in terms of kind of culturally and and ecologically, but there was something just kind of something touching about kind of how a nation kind of takes takes pride in something. I mean, you go, you go to Dhaka and you see like the airport is like a, a knockoff of the, of the, of the capital. And, you know, there, there's like a pride in, in kind of what this thing that was developed as a national, as kind of a national icon, how it, how it kind of proliferates across the country. So I was totally fascinated by that. Plus just thought the buildings were, were beautiful though, though flawed and, you know, the kind of the way that they deal with light and, and texture and permanence. And so that was obviously like, you know, fodder for Lakewood and Lakewood was riffing on the same sort of things like curves and heaviness and oculi and, and materials because it was a, because it was a mausoleum. I mean, everything had to be permanent and forever. So there was no, I mean, we couldn't say slap on some metal panel system out of a catalog. Everything had to be something that could last, you know, 300, 500 years and the building could be turned off. You could turn off the electricity and turn off the heat and just let it kind of become part of nature again. And so we were using, you know, obviously stone and metals that have a life beyond the new and thinking about kind of, you know, that building, it's all about texture and, you know, the, the granite, the granite on the side. I mean, we didn't really want to use granite. We would rather use the stone that weathered and kind of decompose. You think about kind of um, think about headstones in a 19th, 18th century cemetery. If you're sure. in Mount Auburn and in Cambridge, you kind of see how the marble is start to weather. And we had to use granite because the cemetery didn't want things to crumble. <laughs> but, and so we had to kind of create that through texturizing the stone. And, and again, we had, we had a long time to play with this and we were doing, you know, building mock-ups of stone walls in, in the office and breaking light across things and getting samples and kind of beating things up and seeing how they, how they would weather. Again, it's the kind of things that, you know, I think aside from like someone like Peter Zumthor, it's hard to like have a practice built around that. So it was weird. So that, yeah, so yeah, that project kind of ruined me. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you mean by that? that it's well, it just, and it made me realize that, um, so much of the profession outside projects like that, it's about kind of quickly kind of, checking things off a, you know, doing things off a checklist and moving on and handing it off, you know, picking some stuff off a catalog. And there's so much more in a building than, than just kind of fulfilling a program and, and giving the client what they tell you they want, you know, you know, really great things take time and they take struggles and they take experimentation and they take, and they're probably not, you know, as profitable because you're spending time on it, but it's the only way to kind of, move kind of move the needle in the profession beyond kind right, of the right 
do you think projects do you think projects like that um you had mentioned sort of that 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 studio was like an incubator do you imagine that um, projects like that also sort of educate potential clients to look at what we can do if you give us the budget and the time and you we can create yes. amazing spaces? Totally. And I think that's, you know, that's, you know, Joan and John are continuing to have a lot of success with with that. And I'm seeing like projects at HGA that kind of, you know, I think clients realize that you can be in a kind of a conservative 19th century landscape and do something that's forward thinking, but that um, still holds its own and is of the quality of the things that were built that people like. So I think, it, yeah, it's definitely an educational tool. So it, that that position in that studio seems like a dream job. It, it, yes. you, you sort of go through architecture school mm -hmm. dreaming that this is where I, what I'll do as an architect mm -hmm. and then you find yourself sort of accidentally in that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, why did why did you leave? Why did you move on to, uh, yes. to the next step in your story? And that was, yeah, it was, it was definitely an unusual thing for me to do. Um, and, you know, at, at once Lakewood kind of was wrapping up, I was just kind of realizing, you know, you know, I'm young, I'm 28. What am I going to do for the next kind of, you know, 20 to 30 years of my career? Like I knew that sort of project wouldn't happen. And I was going through a bit of just kind of wondering how can I position myself better? So I'm, you know, I could have stayed, you know, I, I adore Joan and John, I would have stayed there forever, but I was um, just thinking, you know, I, I was realizing there are things in this in the profession that kind of hold us back. And so I had this idea at the time, like I really want to think a little bit more about, you know, what are the hindrances in the profession that keep work from being so good. So I had this idea, maybe I want to kind of shift scales a little bit and think about kind of policy. What if I want to think about finance? And so I had this idea in my head, like, all right, I really need to go back to school because I don't know anything about money. I don't know anything about kind of regulatory frameworks. And so I thought, well, I should study urban design or urban policy or business. And so I just kind of on a whim applied to schools and got into the GSD and thought this is the perfect place to kind of experiment. And I went in with all these dreams of like going to business school and sitting in on a class and going like going to MIT and like doing some stuff with their, they have this really great urbanism thing and you know the GSD is kind of the perfect launching off pad for that yeah so I ended up like redoubling back on architecture once I got there <laughs> which was an interesting <laughs> thing and it's just kind of the accidental happenstance of um so were you were you school. accepted to Harvard to to go to the GSD or did you go yeah. did you apply for something else I applied I applied for the urban design program yeah I already had a master's so I also didn't want to do a double master's in architecture so I figured urban design will kind yeah. of give me that extra scale of inquiry. Um, and so I got in, you know, right off the bat, knew it was the place, the place for me, knew I could kind of test a little bit what I had, about what I had studied in, in at HGA and contextualize it in a much larger, on a very different kind of platform on a very different sort of different stage where people kind of notice your work and, and, you know, yeah, I had a blast and it was just really fun to kind of learn about mapping and systems and, and, you know, things, things like landscape urbanism and, you know, things I'd never, never considered when I was working on buildings and kind of standalone 
So it did what you hoped it would do, sort of opened up your mind and and gave you the platform and the opportunity to explore these potentials of architecture and design. Yeah. Yeah. And zoning, like I won with one of my, one of my friends, we won the housing, the housing award at the GSD for something that really, it was all about the New York City zoning code. So it was just kind of like taking these kind of absurd things that we deal with on day to day and play around with them. And then, and then I lotteried into um, Rem's studio on OM again, the GSD option studios, they're all lottery. And so I signed up and that kind of took all the stuff that I was doing with urbanism and kind of reset me wait right back in architecture because it was yeah. the studio was, a, it was something where he was trying to get 12 students to help him in the early visioning for the Biennale where he would just, where he was just named the the director and looking for a student help based in Rotterdam to do it and so there's it was actually one of the first one of the first studios fully abroad the GSD did in quite a long time and I got into it but it was elements of architecture so all of these things about kind of policy and yeah and regulation became about you know walls and doors and windows and and such and so when I was in the studio I you know there was kind of a, a set list of a set list of elements that Rem and James Westcott, who's his editor, and Stefan Peterman came up with. Um, and the wall was not one of them. <laughs> and I, th- I found that really kind of absurd. So I made a case for like, all right, you know, we're talking about kind of, you know, these, these elements that have shaped how architects practice now, you know, the wall, we need to have the wall in, in this because it's the thing that kind of all, all regulations are kind of imposed on. So I, I did that by taking this, chart out of the the IBC that kind of talked about hourly separation between walls and how you can theoretically have a prison connected to a daycare center connected to a an office building just create an unlimited building through through firewalls and you of course got very excited about that and so the wall was in the in the mix and so I spent my time in the studio really looking at the wall in terms of fire and and insurance and and how kind of these sheetrock partitions that we all know and hate um, really came out of you know 19th century fears of fire and right. and and how mysteriously a lot of this stuff happened around Chicago in the 1870s for a lot of reasons that, have, that I think everyone everyone knows and it, it, it was just kind of it was kind of an absurd and fun story but um, and so I went back after then and went back to the GSC and then after I graduated, I went back to Rotterdam to kind of help flesh out the book and with AMO and kind of yeah. take it, take it to the next level and work on the exhibition and work on, and there was another round of students there when I was there that I kind of helped guide and build on the, the previous students work. And What a fantastic opportunity. Let's take a break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. BIM can be important for your next project, but it's not the only thing you need for your next project. That's why it's important that 95% of manufacturers who offer free BIM files on RCAT also offer another type of data or information that your project may need. That means 95% of the products with BIM also have CAD files, are in a specification, in a patented spec wizard, or may have product information to help you make the right selection. So stop going to a site with just BIM and go to rcat.com to get everything you need for your next project for free and without registering. No cost, 
no credit card, no email. It's free. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T dot com. When building a business you're passionate about, it's easy to feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. And if you're doing all the invoicing and accounting on your own, you're probably spending time on work you don't love. FreshBooks is built for business owners like us. It's the all-in-one accounting software that saves entrepreneurs and freelancers up to 11 hours a week. That's 11 hours that you could spend nailing a client pitch, designing your next project, or building your business as an architect. From preparing, sending, and following up on invoices, to tracking and managing expenses, to processing online payments, FreshBooks automates and simplifies all the tough and annoying parts of running your own business. So try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. Go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section and get more time back to build the business you love. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So after you did that, where, where, what, what did you do after that? I mean, it's just, it's like one step to the next step to the next step. It just keeps getting better and better. So yes. where do you go? Where do you go from there? How do you, how do you yes. sort of top that? So my time started wrapping up and my student loans started going, going to repayment. So I knew I needed to go back to the United States and kind of yep. start going, start kind of resetting my career back in professional trajectory. And so I, I knew I wanted to be in New York. I hadn't lived there before, but I knew, you know, I had to give this thing a try and interviewed a lot of places, I had some really great, you know, conversations with DSR and with SOM, kind of the usuals. And I fell into shop and had this interesting, you know, I had known of shop. I knew some people who worked there who went back to Minnesota and I'd always been kind of following their work in terms of, you know, this is a firm that really is rethinking how the delivery of the delivery of buildings and, you know, engaging with construction and engaging with all the taboos that, you know, we're not supposed to do in professional right. practice. Like I, and so I was again, totally intrigued with that. So I sat in on the interview, kind of put Lakewood on the, on the table in front of one of the, one of the partners. And there, he was just like fascinated by it and said, well, well, you'd be perfect to do interiors on our 57th street project, which I didn't really know what that was at the time. I was, you know, fresh, fresh off the plane from Rotterdam was just kind of living in this bubble of, you know, sheetrock and land ceilings and toilets and all the fun stuff that we were studying back there. And, and so like, I got the offer, looked it up and he's like, Oh, it's a tower. <laughs> and this is someone who like, I never, like, I never, um, never wanted. Yeah. I think if you would have talked to me in 2009 before all this happened and said, you know, you know, relatives would always be like, "Oh, I'm sure you want to work on skyscrapers." I'd be like, "Absolutely not!" Like, I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's but not, in, in not the, a check to be box. You know, no box to be checked there. But in the intervening years, you know, as I kind of started learning about you know zoning and technology and kind of the all all what it takes, it suddenly became really intriguing. And 57 Street was like the perfect incubator for you know. You know, and I didn't know this at the time. I was just like, oh, it's going to be a tall building. It's going to be fun. But kind of the layers of, and it, it had already been, I picked it up right at, right as kind of like mid SD was going on. And so a lot of, I mean, a lot of the cake had been baked in terms of, in terms of kind of 
the overall vision, the shape of the building and the materiality, but the steps to bring that to fruition and not lose it was kind of yeah. my charge. <laughs> and it, through that, I, I really had to get deep into you know, a number of times and we recalculated the zoning. I mean, that thing, it was all about, it was all about kind of taking kind of the extreme impositions of kind of air rights and, and buildable, buildable area and there's a landmark thrown in and there's all kind of bonuses. So it's a very complicated mathematical thing that led it there. And so I had to kind of really relearn that and relearn that as, you know, as every change process to make sure that we didn't kind of lose it. And then there's a whole kind of story about New York, which was fascinating because we knew it was going to be terracotta, but how do they, how on earth are we going to get, you know, make this thing of a material that hasn't been used since the teens and that had problems. You think about kind of the Woolworth building when right. terracotta was originally was originally kind of treated like brick and it spalled and popped off. So obviously having to do this thing that kind of looks like this other material, but in a totally different way. So using technology to kind of reclaim a lost a lost sort of aesthetic, but then do it without without kind of going the shocky sort of faux historicist mode. So it was, it was tough. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was a, it was a really small team. None of us, I mean, we're a core team of 12 people, mostly through, through CDs, we were doing full service. So we were not working with an associate architect. None of us had worked on a tower and I was, I was the most experienced and I had worked on in my last building before then was Lakewood, which was 24,000 square feet <laughs> Yeah, compared with, you know, 1400 square feet. So it was it was a learning curve. I think everyone on the team was, you know, we all it was trial by fire, but we learned so much and became really really close and and tight and learned things about you know we had to learn things about real estate. We had to learn things about how you market a building like that, how you work with kind of how you you work with the marketers, you work with the the um, kind of the corker and sunshine kind of residential specialists the interior designer like working yeah. with working with someone like bill sofield who did the interiors and kind of took our ideas on the exterior and and internalized them while we still kind of owned the drawings it was a really complicated thing but it was still really and the kind of thing like like lakewood i mean you takes a i think the only reason that we could do that is that we had trust early on because right. we could do the you know, shop exhibited that they understood the regulatory framework of New York enough where they knew they could do this and were, you know, probably naive enough to believe believe in it. And that brought in because of that JDS trusted us to JDS the developer, they trusted us to go a pretty long way. And, you know, we had to we had to solve the problem that we made for ourselves. Was but, there was there one lesson that you learned during that process that that you could sort of cite uh, about the concept of not losing it, right? You had mentioned that there was a specific design and, you, and, and we saw that happen down at, at Ground Zero where these yeah. fantastic designs were created and then what was built was nothing like what was originally designed. Mm -hmm. and, and that's essentially what you're talking about, losing the, the original concept. What, is there some specific thing that you can sort of point out and say, this is why this project succeeded? I think you've got to, and it's fighting. And the exterior was really, I mean, the exterior and the top of the building were kind of two things that we were always afraid, you know, could could they lop off the top of the building? Could they turn the terracotta into a metal panel? And right. those are kind of the kind of 
voices screaming in, in our heads as we kind of are working through it. So, and, you know, at that point, you know, I'd worked at, you know, I'd worked at firms long enough to know that, that there's always a risk of mediocrity creeping in and you've got to, you've got to fight for it and give a reason to have it not be shot down when someone in a meeting says, you know, brings up the, the notion of value engineering. And, right. and I think that's, it's part of, it's part of the architect to not, to not fall into that trap and really believe in what you're doing and make a case for it and make a really good case for it verbally, visually. I mean, you know, and then it also, it's also the client, you know, the client has to recognize that too. And I think it's just, it's just conversation, you know, and I think in terms of the terracotta at that point, if we had turned the, if we had turned the project into metal panel and their whole story, the whole story that was starting to evolve about the building is being this homage to New York, to the Woolworth building, to, yeah. to, to Chrysler, to, to kind of upper park Avenue. If it's metal panel, that just kind of goes away. So I think right. that's, you know, the, that's architect's part to make that, make these things. It's not just about, it looks better. It's that it's an integral part of the building and it exists for a really compelling reason. And, so there and needs to be what, there needs to be a story that you have created that this is why this is is designed yeah. this way, and then be able mm -hmm. to communicate that story in a very effective way. Exactly, and it's graphically and it's verbally. You know, yeah. I think, you know, shop's really good, and you know, I'd say everyone there is really good at um, at having a good elevator pitch and understanding. You know, you talk to people about the building, and you know. You know the words that would come. Yeah, you know, I think every everyone on the team would say, "All right, it's not a it's not a glass tower. It's an homage to New York. It's a, you know, it's something that it has these relationships to the 1916 zoning code. So there are these really interesting things that are integral to the building. And I think that was, you know, I'd say the learning, you know, a learning how to push the building forward and actually get it built was one one thing I learned. But also at shop, what I learned was understanding the, the value of, of the elevator pitch and yeah, not letting that fall by because it, it's rare. And I see this, I've seen this on, in other firms I've kind of been involved with more recently, or even just talking to other architects friends and they, you talk to them about the building, you get this like 15 page thing about kind of, we, we did this, the, or it's this very dry thing says it's a 300,000 square foot lab building that has blah, 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 which right. is yep. very technical. Yeah, may, may be interesting to architects, but it's just completely uninspiring. And yeah, you're essentially building a brand for the for the building, saying that yeah. this is the story, this is the backstory of this building, this is why it exists. Yeah, and you don't talk about it in terms of this is a building and it's built like this, and this is the, mm -hmm. you know the structural system. You talk about the homage to New York City and and the history of New York City and and how this is becoming. You know, the story of developing this is going mm -hmm. to pay tribute to the history of the city and talks about yeah. that story and then why that's so important. So that ties it to what it is, right? And so as soon as you lose the top or you lose the, the material, that story mm -hmm. goes out the window. So if you can get them to buy into the story, then you have an ally to protect all the other elements that that basically develop that story. Exactly. And, you know, it's, you know, it's really about, yeah, I, I, there's something in in architectural storytelling that has to come from the project team, or else it becomes superficial. And I think that's where people struggle. I mean, I think you know, the number of times I've been in other meetings on other projects where someone just kind of brings out an idea, and the architect's only defense is to say, "Well, it looks bad." Like that's not enough. Like, right. They, 
care. <laughs> yeah, it looks it's bad, but more. it saves me a million dollars. So yeah. I don't care what it looks like. It, it's got to be more. And I think that's what, you know, that's kind of why I also enjoyed my time at, at Big because it was a similar sort of thing. I mean, and I kind of took 57th Street forward. And at that point, I was a little bit tower hungry. And they came with <laughs> me with something and they're offering another tower. And I was like, oh, this is really intriguing. And it was more kind of ground up and you know, I was working on. So that led me to kind of go from the from 57th Street to the spiral, which was very different in terms of kind of its its motive its motives, you know, a residential tower on Central Park yeah. versus a, a corporate headquarters building in Hudson Yards. Lots of similarities in terms of zoning. And at that point I had gotten quite good at kind of understanding, kind of working through the loopholes and various kind of things you need to do to not kind of have your building fall flat on its face in, in New York and, you know, working with some of the same consultants. So I kind of knew then as there, there are familiar faces in a lot of the, a lot of the, the owner architect consultant meetings on big projects, on big projects in the city. So I'd become pretty familiar with those people and it was an interesting challenge, but understanding, you know, whereas I think JDS's motivation on the, on 57th Street was really about kind of this idea of an icon that, you know, anchored, anchored Central Park South and this thing that competes with the, with kind of the, the object towers in the building. I and mean, there's more of a real estate motivation on, on um, the spiral. Super interesting. And Tishman Spire is, is really brilliant at kind of understanding their value and, and kind of the cutting edge of, of, an office building. So it was again really interesting. You know, I learned more I learned about storytelling on on 57th Street. I learned about real estate on on the spiral. And interesting. And so so there are different um, motivations and priorities depending on the type building type and the developer that you're working with. Mm -hmm. So you sort of have to understand all of these moving parts and understand what that Right, it, you're 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 sharing a story at, mm -hmm. uh, on the first project, but you're also having to tell a story on the other one. But it's a different story. Yes. Right, and and appealing to different different decision makers, and mm -hmm. and so it's it's a similar process, but it's a different audience. Yes, and appealing to different you know on, on spiral. You know, it was also helping pitch the building to potential tenants and kind of telling our story and kind of telling the story that PRK had about the building. Yeah. To you know real estate people and who are possibly, you know, who are helping, helping find the right tenant, for, find the right building for their client who is a tenant. And they usually have another architecture firm who does tenant improvements on, on board. So it's a, trying to sell. And whereas the you know, 57th street was talking to the public, this was talking, talking to other architects and consultants and real estate professionals. So different yeah. sort of, very, very interesting. The I never understood, you know, the the process involved of of designing super talls like that mm -hmm. you're talking about, and uh, you know, I, I, especially in New York City, you know, I could imagine the regulation hurdles that you have to get through, um, even before you have to deal with budgets and and yeah. developers' priorities. Um, very interesting to hear your origin story and to you know to to hear the progression and where you've learned this. Mm -hmm. At each step of the way, you've applied that new growth to the next step, and you've just mm -hmm. worked your way up, continuing to grow. 
uh, all the way to the point where you're designing skyscrapers in New York City, which is yes. you know mind blowing that you get that opportunity to to lead a team to design a skyscraper in, in one of the most you know well known cities in the world. Yes, uh, pretty fascinating. Um, are there any? Is there any specific lesson? We're, we're talking mostly with small firm architects today. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that you could share? Is there one thing that a small firm architect could do today uh, to build their business for tomorrow? Yeah, I'd say it's scalable, and I'm and I'm, and I'm dealing with this on my own thing now that I'm have, have kind of moved to a different city and I'm starting starting on my own and working on much smaller projects again. Kind of, I think everything that I learned in these big buildings about being an effective communicator, yeah. drawing drawing really good clear diagrams that kind of can sell an idea and, and talking, you know, spending, spending your time, spending a lot more time earlier on really trying to empathize with, with what you're being asked to do and what, with the motivations of the person who's hired you, whether it's an individual homeowner, whether it's a, whether it's a kind of a smaller, a smaller kind of organization or a nonprofit, but understanding what their, what their priorities are rather than, I think we all kind of get the program and think, all right, the client wants to do this, we'll do it. But I think there's more value if you actually really try to understand them and reach different sort of, um, maybe help them reach different conclusions that they don't understand. Again, we're, we're professionals, they're hiring us to, to bring knowledge that they, they probably don't have, which is why they're hiring us. And right. I think it's on us to really spend the time in the front end doing that rather than kind of quickly just setting, you know, getting the program and starting to design right away, spend, spend a couple of weeks researching and, and sketching out ideas and, and how they work and, and understand the motivations rather than come in there thinking like an architect. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, it, it is everything that you've talked about, uh, in this, in this conversation, uh, ties back to preparation. Right, yes. doing the research, understanding the project, understanding the client, understanding all the decision makers, all the sh- the shareholders, right in the in the in the decision, the stakeholders, uh, in in the project, understanding them, you know, very specifically, and then being able to uh, take all that information and communicate that in a very clear, non-arca-speak way, right? Yes, it's speaking to real people who who have emotions and that you want to connect with, and and uh, priorities and, and things that really matter to them. And they're passionate about either for your project or against your project. And you need yes. to be prepared to be able to communicate all of that. Um, and when you, when you do, you have a better opportunity to design the greatest work of your life, right? That yeah. the better you are at that, the more opportunity you're going to, to not lose the project, um, exactly. and, and be able to design the things that you want to design. So how are you? How are you applying some of those lessons today? Because now you have your own firm. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you applying some of those lessons today on the projects that you're working on today? And I'm I'm starting out. I mean, right now I'm starting out pretty small and kind of focusedly working on you know primarily residential projects. So that's not my only my only goal. But I'm treating each one as an opportunity to get to know the person. Yeah, I think that's the you know spending time you know sitting down with you know. The people who have hired me and trying to understand. I mean, if they tell you, you know, they're showing you a bunch of things on a Pinterest board, you know, 
that's only one step and that's something someone else has done and it's speaking architects, but really trying to understand why they're drawn to certain things and, and helping push them, um, not push them, but help guide them in a direction that does that kind of goes beyond their initial expectations. So it's the same sort of thing, you know, on one project I've, you know, it's a very small, like 400 square foot thing, but I've spent a lot of time on it because again, I'm, it's an experiment and I'm experimenting yeah. with the process for kind of a one-on-one -on -one sort of relationship with a client. And, you know, it's, I was trying to find a way of, you know, she wanted the kitchen in a certain place. And I really believed it should have been elsewhere, like on the periphery of the building. And I went through a whole diagram exercise of kind of talking about light and doing some studies. I mean, the residential skill, no one ever does things like that, right. but it, it helped her understand. And now she's like a huge advocate for why yeah for why it's there and at this point you know if i would if someone would say oh you know yeah you really you should really put the kitchen back where it was i think she would she would not She'd fight for it yeah so it's, yeah. it's the same I and mean, it's the same sort of thing you gotta you know kind of do the research not look at whether what other architects have done kind of really kind of understand the systems and their motivations this client wanted light it was more important to put the kitchen where he wanted because the light was better there and i could show it in a very kind of simple Clear diagram. So, see, it's the same sort of same sorts of things that. Yeah. Did you say four hundred square feet? Four hundred square feet. <laughs> what an extreme to go from super tall towers to a four hundred square foot residential project. But it's fun because you can, you know, yeah. playing around. I mean, I Fifty Seventh Street and you know, I got to work with some of the greatest suppliers in the world in terms of things like door hardware and and stone. So. You know, it's an opportunity to really kind of think about that and think about the tactile and the and the you know things that you touch can be nicer and when you're dealing with 400 square feet you can be really kind of specific with those sorts of things yeah for sure is there is there um what's your plan for the firm because in the introduction i mentioned mm -hmm. that you're very focused on research and sort of exploring mm -hmm. the, the possibilities of what architecture could be so so what what's the what's the plan because it's a new firm yeah. what's the what's the it plan is. for the new firm i think the sweet spot is you know i i really you know i think there's a great there's a huge opportunity in buildings that are i'd say under twenty five thousand square feet um which kind of puts you in the kind of you know worship buildings maybe libraries obviously houses and things like that yeah, i think that's a really great place to be and i think you know particularly in the dc market there's very few. I mean, there are a lot of people who do kind of their your mega firms doing giant, you know, giant corporate buildings, giant lab buildings. They're kind of expected. Yeah, I think there's no, and, and then at the other end, there are people doing really precious houses and some very good ones. There's no one in that kind of mid range. And I think it could be a really good opportunity to kind of bring, bring new thought to that and also help, you know, I, mean, I have a huge, you know, I have a huge interest in history. And I think 57th Street and Lakewood kind of, Kind of ruined me for that where i'm you know i'm really unafraid to go there in terms of yeah you know you know why don't we use an arch here like yeah i think there's 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 room to there's really room to do to do things with that and you know dc you know kind of wavers between being like overtly a and pastiche or being kind of way far over the line i think there's something in between that nobody's really touching on so yeah. So we'll see. But if someone would come with me wanting a 200,000 square foot office building, I'd do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or a new tower. Um, so is, is, 
is the plan to build a, a larger firm or you or is it going to stay intentionally small? I mean, I think there's a max, you know, of and and right now it's very, very small. You know, I think if I could have, you know, there's and there these thresholds of like the like if you're if you're twelve people, you're one thing. If you're at forty people, you're another thing. Right. I'd never want to be more than forty. Right? I think at that point you kind of become something that becomes hierarchical and yep. and you know, there's kind of a lot of kind of political things that start happening. So I really, you know, I think, you know, if I could pull it off to have a, you know, you know, you know I go back to the, the Joan and John studio where it was three of us, we could do it. We are supported with a firm that was, you know, 800 people if we needed help to pull people on or get people in, in to kind of do production or we needed to understand a certain thing. I and mean, we had resources at behind us. So I think three is maybe too small. So, you know, 10 to 15 would be a perfect number. I would think where it's kind of in yeah. between you can do it, you can do things and no one's going to say, you can't, you can't design this because it's just you, right. one person in a we work or something, but yeah, very interesting. It'll be fascinating to watch you grow and to see, uh, the next step for Nicholas Potts. Yes. Um, what a fascinating origin story to, to hear that story to where you are now. Uh, his name is Nicholas Potts. The firm name, if you want to check it out, it's The Practice of Art and Architecture, and you can learn more about it at nicholasgpotts.com. We'll have links to that on the show notes. Um, Nicholas, this has been really interesting, and, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the show here today and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. That's how you could help grow Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, Arcat and FreshBooks for their support of this episode. Links to all our sponsors and all our resources that we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. That's you. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Go there now. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. Ready to edit business resources for architects, live monthly business training for architects, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership, including AIA continuing education learning units. Yep, they are there, they are too. Entree Architect is there for you. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Thanks for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. 
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.